namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namassa So one of the things that's on my mind this evening uh, that I thought could uh, raise for reflection is the meeting that I had uh, a few weeks ago. Somebody came to see me to uh, ask for me to raise an objection about a restaurant in uh, Durham called the Fat Buddha. And it wasn't an equanimous request. It was a rather impassioned request. Uh, There was uh, quite a lot of uh, indignation on the part of those asking for me to intervene and do something about this situation. And so, of course, I, uh, I listened. And, uh, but it's not my view that uh, you know, we need to worry about these things, quite frankly. Whatever we do, uh, people are going to name restaurants Fat Buddha or whatever else. Um, and the issue really is... Uh, not to do with taking responsibility for other people, but really taking responsibility for ourselves. You know, so where, where are we coming from? And, and so in this situation, as I say, the request was not an equanimous request. In fact, there was quite a bit of, uh, quite a bit of energy uh, behind it. And I thought, really, you know, what, what, what would the Buddha make of it? What was the Buddha's teaching really about? Was it about worrying about... Uh, what the public do with Buddha images? Or is it about finding out how to uh, be free from suffering? That's the point. Now, personally, if I don't know, I mean, probably I wouldn't, that wouldn't be my restaurant of choice. Um, But I I don't really think there's a problem with it. I I remember when I was, in Germany a few years ago, I don't I think it was at Hamburg or maybe it was Berlin, and there was a restaurant there called, or it was a bar called Buddha Bar. And I remember a little little kind of flicker of indignation and, and you know, I'm going to go in and tell these people. And so really, is that, is that really going to help? You're going to, I don't think it's going to make any difference if you go in and tell them that you don't like them calling their bar the Buddha Bar. That's not really what the Buddha's teaching is about. I mean, people are always going to do this sort of thing. And in the, um, it was only a few years ago that uh, that bunch of uh, fundamentalist uh, evangelicals blew up the Bamiyan Buddhas, remember, in, in um, Afghanistan. And, and for me, that just basically goes to show that you can't go for refuge to a Buddha image. Because you know, somebody can blow it up. That's not a safe refuge. That's not the refuge. It's not the not the Buddha image. Even Buddhism, you know, like the feeling that we have to protect Buddhism and that, you know, if I don't stand up for Buddhism, it's going to die out or I'm betraying the Buddha if I don't stand up for the Buddha. As I understand, what the Buddha was asking us to do really was to find that place within us that is uh, unshakable, 
that that can't be destroyed. You talked about the Dhamma is unshakable, griefless, dustless, secure, that which which cannot be damaged or destroyed or taken away. There are situations, I admit, where it can be right to say something. I think I, I think I, I mentioned this a, a few weeks ago when I was in a store in Newcastle and saw all these Buddha images being sold off as bits of kitsch, you know, to put around your living room. And, and uh, there was one big Buddha image there sitting on the floor with a bit of tape wrapped around its head and then over to a pillar and it was being marking off an area where the floor was slippery or something. And, and I thought, well, they're probably not doing this out of lack of respect. They'd probably like to know. And so when I got back, I, um, I wrote a letter to the uh, public relations officer of the company. And they did. They, they were very pleased to know, actually, and they wrote back a, a very nice letter, a very polite letter, saying they were going to make a point of of educating their staff in future that Buddha images don't get put on the floor and that although for some people it's seen as a, a bit of uh, decoration for the house, for many, many millions of people on the planet this is an object of devotion and, and needs to be uh, treated with uh, due respect. And So I think you know, there are situations and times when it's perhaps right to say something, but the priority I would suggest is that, that we, we remember that the Buddha wasn't pointing out there at objects and saying this is a safe refuge. Yeah. Okay, he did recommend paying homage to the Bodhi tree or, or to the Dhamma Chaka, the wheel, or the empty seat or the footprint. These, But even then, it was always with mindfulness and with understanding that we're not going for refuge to any object outside ourselves, but that truth which we have the possibility for realizing. And so... When these situations come up where yeah. our religion gets insulted or or we're tempted to have a go at somebody else, because yeah. that can happen. And, you know, I, I often reflect on what uh, probably most of you have come across at some stage, the uh, edicts of King Ahsoka, uh, the Ahsoka pillars that have been found in India that have still got the inscriptions uh, the great king Ahsoka, but he wasn't always great. You know, for a long while he was a total scoundrel, uh, but uh, eventually realized the errors of his ways and embraced the Buddhist teachings uh, in a very uh, wholehearted way and realized the benefit for himself and did become a genuine great king. And one of the one of the uh, things that is uh, inscripted and carved on these these pillars is with regards to tolerance of other religions. And, and he says, uh, do not honor your own religion and condemn or criticize others. Rather, honor your own religion and honor other religions for this or that reason. In other words, you know, find the, the, uh, the good things uh, that, uh, that can be seen in other religions. And he said, in so doing, your own religion becomes strong and you do a service towards the other religion. And doing otherwise, that is getting lost and criticizing and condemning, this is actually you dig your own grave or you dig the grave for your own religion and you do a disservice or harm to the others. And this was 2000, 2000 years ago in India and I think it's something really good to reflect on as a, as a principle and, and how we... 
can wisely respond to criticism as as a guideline. But even more importantly, you know, these guiding principles and, and, and suggestions, but even more fundamentally, I think, to remember the, the orientation of our investigation as Buddhists. You know, it's, it's here. It's looking inwards. It's saying, where are we coming from? If somebody criticizes us or criticizes our religion, what's really going on? You know, I, I know if, if um, somebody criticizes Buddhism or... <laughs> One of the things that comes up for me is the the feeling of being misunderstood. I really like to be understood, and I don't like to be misunderstood. And well, do I have to? Do I have to believe in that? You know, can I be misunderstood? I, it's actually quite helpful just to can I be misunderstood? Look at all the effort we put into being understood, being accepted. being accepted by others? Do we need to be accepted and approved of? And these these so-called needs that we have, I think, um, yeah, they can be noticed. They can be observed. We don't have to feed them. Yeah, during childhood development, there are very real emotional needs that children need to have met. But that surely doesn't uh, pertain to us at our stage of life, that... If we can observe these needs with mindfulness and recognize, well, I can go without being understood. You know, you could, like feeling rejected, feeling misunderstood. There's a feeling that I can have. I can have that feeling mindfully, not just denying it. But if I can feel misunderstood, feel unreceived, well, then there's a certain sort of, eventually, there's a letting go, then a certain sort of freedom comes. Freedom from that. And then I think we're really a a useful person in society. So I would like to, uh, you know, suggest that we use such opportunities if we feel insulted or dismissed or whatever to reflect on. Can we go without, basically? Can we go without being understood? And this is, I think, a very helpful theme in a society where we're always being told you need this, you need that. Somebody very kindly brought me the, the, uh, the observer, is it, that we get on Sunday today? And and it's full of all these uh, magazines that are now advertising for Christmas, all the the things that, that you know we, we we should have, we need to have, and so on. Yeah. From a dhamma perspective, it's quite possible for us to turn the light of awareness around and just reflect on needs when they arise. Yeah. And so, something like going without being understood, going without popularity. Yeah, that's another thing you can do I have to always be having people like me I was reflecting on that earlier today actually there was I was well into my 40s before I was able to really consciously accept that some people don't like me you know it's pretty obvious that some people didn't like me I mean glaringly <laughs> obvious but I couldn't admit it I wouldn't admit it until thankfully eventually I would it's not a, it wasn't a horrible feeling, it was just a good feeling because it's true. And if we can't accept something like that, we can't accept the fact that, that uh, some people don't like us, well then we can put all this energy going, running around asking people to like us, to love us, to accept <coughs> us, to understand us and so on. So I would suggest this is a very helpful practice to pick up the theme of learning how to go without. Yeah. 
go without approval, not because we don't value ourselves or, you know, we've got some sort of un, unhelpful kind of conditioning going on there, not at all, but just so, because we don't want to have to spend all our energy chasing after something false. Yeah. Somebody was relating to me recently how they found themselves in a situation where they had to care for somebody who was dying, uh, somebody they held, a friend, and somebody they held in the highest regard, and it fell to them, the task to care for this person. And one of the most difficult aspects of their job was dealing with all these people who kept coming to see the dying person and uh, and somehow, you know, telling people to go away. You know, it's, a, it's something you sometimes have to do when you're protecting the patient. Basically, you've got to accept that you're going to um, build enemies. But you're not building enemies because you're a bad person. That's something else, isn't it? Building enemies because we're doing something bad, that's something else. But building enemies because we're doing what is right, well, if we're so attached to being liked, being approved of, being popular, well, then isn't it the case that uh, we're in situations where we sometimes can't do what's right? Yeah. So just, again, holding that up and saying, can I go without being liked? And and it's something that in situations in daily life where it comes up and, you know, you, you, if you make a, a theme of this contemplation and you start to look at it and something, you, just, you can just catch yourself. You're just about to reach out for that emotional head, give me something nice to make me feel good, and say, well, yeah, I can do that, but can I also inhibit that out of an interest in being free? You know, this is, that's where we're coming from, out of interest in being free from that false energy. And the uh, the wonderful thing about it is that it, it builds an inner strength. Yeah. And it's something that you, you can um, feel positive about doing, learning to go without things, learning to go without things on a, on a physical level. Yeah. I... Um, a few weeks ago, I forget exactly where it was or who it was, but somebody was somebody had had seen um, one of the senior nuns at Chithurst, Ajantania. Uh, went been to visit her and and talk with her, and, and she was busy darning an old T-shirt that she had, and it transpired that Ajantania had this T-shirt for fifteen years. And it had a hole in it, and, and she was darning it, and she'd darned it before, but it was time to darn it again. And, and uh, the person who was relating this to me was so impressed and inspired by this uh, modesty, this frugality, and, and the fact that Argentania was somebody, although she was a senior nun and, and, and well-supported, uh, she was quite willing to go without something, and, and this was a source of inspiration. And, and that's also something very beautiful. You, how we feel when we see somebody who is modest. Hmm. There's a story in the scriptures um, about um, the uh, Buddha was going in arms round one day. He was uh, going to Rajagaha. It was a festival day. And he had a, a bunch of, of monks with him. And as they were going to Rajagaha, they passed a whole a large group of youths. 500 youths, it says in the story. The 500 youths were heading off to a park to have some fun. It was a festival day. And they had with them uh, their picnic, which was a whole stash of pancakes. 
And I guess some of these bhikkhus didn't practice mindfulness. You know, you're supposed to keep your eyes plowed length ahead and watch the head. They must have looked sideways and caught a glimpse of these pancakes and were having uh, covetous thoughts. And, and anyway, the Buddha could read their minds and he said, he says, don't worry, monks. He said, uh, see what happens in a few minutes because the owner of those pancakes is coming along behind. And let's just wait under this tree here and, and we'll see what happens. And so the Buddha and the monks sat down under the, in the shade of the tree and Sure enough, coming along behind was Venerable Kasapa. And those of you who know your scriptures will know Venerable Kasapa was a great ascetic, a much loved and admired monk. And as uh, these 500 youths hadn't given any food to the bhikkhus or to the Buddha, but as soon as they saw Venerable Kasapa, they bowed down the most inspired and they, they recognized him and, and wanted to make an offering of, of pancakes, yummy pancakes to, to Venerable Kasapa who then uh, said, well, my teacher, the Buddha, is just over there, and, and the right thing to do would be to go and, uh, and offer some pancakes to, to the Buddha, which, which they then did, which he, of course, shared with the monks with him. But then, um, and then there was a, uh, uh, some teachings, and it transpires that these 500 youths all became sotapanas, stream enterers, attained to the Dhamma on the spot. But uh, some of these monks mentioned to the Buddha about, you know, how is it? You know, what is it? What's so special about Kasapa? I guess they had a little indignation going on there. And, you know, how come we didn't get off it and he did? And, and the Buddha pointed out on this occasion, and he said, well, that's, you know, when somebody lives the life that Venerable Kasapa lives, a life of frugality, of modesty, of contentment, of asceticism, then such a person will always be loved and supported. And there's a verse, a Dhammapada verse that he offered on this occasion, which is verse 217, where he says, Naturally loved are those who live with right action and have discovered the way, and through insight have become established in truth. Well, the moral of that story uh, is not, by the way, that if you give pancakes to bhikkhus, you become stream enterers, um, although that would be... Um, nice to think about. That's not the moral. It's <laughs> not the moral story. Uh, the moral of the story is that actually, feeling loved, feeling received, feeling respected, all the things that we like, don't come by following our neediness. They don't come by looking out there trying to get more. Actually, what works is by trusting what's inward already, by trusting in Dhamma. And by, in fact, recognizing this, this perception that we have of, I need more, always looking out there for, for what I haven't got. And if on a conventional level we, 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 we have an intuition that this is the case and we start to exercise restraint with regards to always looking for more and watching here, watching, can I go without this? Can I go without being understood? Can I go without being praised? Can I go without getting positive affirmations, can I go without practical things by way of experiment and feeding what goes on here in ourselves, what happens is we start to notice that it is quite possible that letting go happens naturally, that this, 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 this drama, this thing of you'll only be satisfied when you have this, is a conditioned story. But it's really deeply conditioned. And it's not an immoral story, it's just an unintelligent one. And so we don't like have to take a position against it and, and get judgmental of objects of desire. I mean, that happens. You know, things that, things that uh, make us get greedy or things that make us get angry for that matter. 
Learning how to say very simply, quietly, no to ourselves is a a great strength. Uh, I emphasize we're not saying no out of ill will or out of aggression, but rather for the sake of arriving at understanding so that we're not always being intimidated by our conditioning. I guess essentially this saying no is the principle of renunciation. Sometimes people think that renunciation is making a a big scene out of living the celibate life or going without food in the evening or whatever. These things, of course, are encouraged as a training from time to time for lay people as well as as those living the committed celibate renunciate life. But those are physical gestures in support of this inner ability to say no to the momentum of our conditioning. Always that feeling of, I need to do more, that that always that that compulsive creativity, always having to do something more, having to say something more, having to become something more. Well, if we take on the, out of interest, a training in in going without, can I go without this? And, And learning to say no, we discover there's a strength and, and we even look forward to it. I remember relating to uh, one teacher about the situation where I had heard a uh, somebody in our community, a senior monk in our community actually, who was uh, he was uh, grumbling a little bit about all the things that about all the things that he's asked to do, and um, and so I was relating this to another teacher and. Okay, sometimes you are asked to do a lot. And, and this teacher just pointed out to me, he says, you know, if you can't say no, you're useless. You're just absolutely useless. If you can't say no, you're useless. You can't really help people if you can't say no. If you can't say no to yourself in a wise and skillful way, then you can't really help others. You know, we need to learn to say no to ourselves in a wise and skillful way. And personally, I, I, I took that very seriously. I remember when this, when this teacher told me that, it really looked me in the eyes as if you can't say no, you're useless. So, wow, okay. So I took that very seriously. And since then, I found out that actually I quite welcome when people ask me to do things. I don't mind. Uh, I've trained myself, actually. I don't mind how much people ask me to do things because I know I'm not afraid of saying no to them. Yeah, it's, uh, that's my job. Actually, in fact, I really like it when... When lay people come and ask for things, ask to give a talk here, a talk there, do this, do that, that's fine. So long as they don't mind me saying no, which uh, actually if you say no in the right way, then people generally don't mind. So being able to say no to ourselves, it, it's like a, it's like a, an inner, inner strength, an inner ability that when we need to say no to some of the, the uh, deeper conditioning, we feel really grateful for it. So being being able to go without yeah. having our reputation affirmed or go without approval and go without being liked, all these things on the outside, really are working towards saying no to these this inner, sometimes demanding voice, this even even screaming 
sometimes. You know, this is, I won't stand for this anymore. I want this, I need this. Can we say no to it? It's demanding. But I need this. In the right way. There's, there's a kind of way of saying no where you really push something down. It's a kind of an aggressive hurting. You know, sometimes children can... And you might feel tempted to say no in an aggressive way, but as a good parent, you learn to not, right? You train yourself to... You don't want to hurt the child. So out of respect for this person and for not hurting them, you know you have to say no, but you learn to say no... In a, in, a, in a kind, understanding way. Well, the same principle applies inwardly. Yeah. Learning how to say no to our inner demanding yeah. in a kind and understanding way is a really valuable training. And then when we come across these tendencies we have within ourselves to always be making something out of things, we can just turn around and say no to it. Say, don't make anything out of it. Yeah. But what if it don't make anything out of it? Or maybe don't make anything out of it. You just, in a very consistent, don't make anything out of it. Until we start to get a feeling for this, we don't have to make anything out of anything. Say, but what if, don't make anything out of it. If we're driven, if we're driven, which is, Surely what most of the world is all about, these excesses and condition, demanding, uh, fighting with the world. Well, when we see these tendencies within ourselves, we can recognize them for what they are. Even that, we don't have to make anything out of it. All my unwholesome tendencies, all my unskillful tendencies, don't make anything out of it. But what if I, if I don't say, don't make anything out of it? And so training on all levels, really, outwardly, in the world, in our relationships, and inwardly, learning to go without is a way of training this ability, uh, inwardly, the ability to not make anything out of things, just to rest with what is, Again, of course, it's not because we're complacent or because we don't care. We don't make a big drama about people insulting the Buddha. It's not because we don't care about the Buddha. Of course we care about the Buddha. But if we make a fight over it, are we really serving the Buddha? Are we really serving Buddhism? Are we really serving ourselves? No. So how how do we do something about that realistically? Well, we look at this inner compulsion. Yeah. The, the cravings that we have, and all of those cravings, where are they all rooted? They're all rooted in me and my way. Don't make anything out of it. We see me and my way raise its head. We're going to raise its ugly head. It's true. They can look really ugly. Conceit is, is, is not beautiful. The Buddha referred to it once as the foulest stench in all existence, the stench of the conceited view of self. Yes, it's ugly. Don't make anything out of it. Now, we can come across the conceited view of self. What do we do? I shouldn't be this way. I should. Is that helping? 
That's like saying those people who insult the Buddha, they shouldn't be this way. And the next thing you know, you've got a war on your hands. Yeah? Well, likewise with ourselves. We, we, we see our own ugliness, our own demanding nature, our own heedless nature, our own greedy nature, our own ignorant nature. So we can make a war out of it, but does that help? No. What's more helpful is to be able to see it, to hear it, as if don't make anything out of it. And then understanding can arise. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.